Good job, buddy. And the rest of the family as well. <clears throat> Good morning. It's supposed to be spring. It's a little chilly. I had to crank the fire up again yesterday. Fight off that cold weather. <clears throat> uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 12 this morning, but before we dive into our text, I just want to kind of make a, an announcement rather than waiting for the announcement time. I was afraid I would forget. Uh, but we are going to have what we're calling an inform and connect meeting here at the church, May 1st, which would be directly after our fellowship meal. So we would um, fellowship together as usual the first Sunday of the month. And then after that, we're going to have a meeting. We're calling it Inform and Connect. And basically what it is, it's an opportunity uh, to hear from you. It's an opportunity to hear what's going on in the church. But more than that, we want to give you a platform and an opportunity to feel connected and uh, maybe to just voice some ideas. So um, that's what we mean by connecting. So um, if you had any questions or anything that you wanted to share, but it's really just an opportunity for all of us to take ownership and kind of evaluate where we are as a church. I would ask that as you think about if that, if you had anything to share or any questions, it'd be nice to have those in advance to make sure we had an answer for you. So if you have something this interests you and you have a question you want to ask or information you'd like, if you could get that to me, email it to me would be wonderful or Write it down and hand it to me either this Sunday or next Sunday. That'd be great. That way I can actually come prepared to answer any questions. It's basically just a get together where we can talk about church. And we want you to know that uh, your feedback is important. So that's um, the first time ever, really, that we've done something like this. But if you have any questions about it, I'll do my best to answer. And so if you're interested, that's what we will do in a few Sundays from now, the first Sunday of May. Um, we are going to look at chapter 12 in Nehemiah this morning, and it's about giving, and I've entitled it A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, that's strictly a tongue-in-cheek title. I was a Clint Eastwood fan, uh, fan growing up, and when I think about money uh, the, and dollars, that, just, that title came into my head. It's a spaghetti western. They don't make them like they used to. A lot of shooting, a lot of killing. You know, watch it at your own risk. It's got nothing to do with Scripture this morning, but um, so that's just a tongue-in-cheek. If you, uh, most of you probably realize that because you've seen that movie, but perhaps some of your younger ones haven't watched it yet. That's all that is. No need to scratch your head. <clears throat> but chapter 10, we've really been watching a reformation take place, a tremendous reformation where people... In the Old Testament, the people of God are just turning their hearts back to God. And it's been so refreshing to to watch them seek the Lord after years, really even generations of waywardness. And in chapter 10, they all came together as a congregation, mom and dad and the kids, the families, they were there. And they made a covenant with God and they said, we're going to walk in your ways. We're going to do things According to your word. And then in chapter 11, we saw them come up with a plan to repopulate the city of God, Jerusalem, so that it continue to be strengthened, so that it won't be at risk, that all that they have accomplished, they can, they can continue to be protected. They continue, can continue to learn God's word and worship the Lord. And so they came up with that plan. And then in chapter 12, it's basically one great big corporate praise and worship service. Because what they're doing in chapter 12 is they are dedicating the wall. 
that they had built under Nehemiah's leadership. Built in just 52 days. And many of them would have considered that accomplishment nothing less than a miracle. Because the city laid in ruins for so many years. And there were attempts made. And there was a little progress here and a little progress there. But Nehemiah comes with a burden from God. And he pulls them together. And they build this wall. It reminded me of a quote I once heard from the uh, British missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. And he said uh, that there are three stages to every great work. Three stages to every great work of God. First stage, it's impossible. Second stage, it's difficult. And third stage, it's done. And so here they are celebrating the building of this wall, which probably seemed impossible and difficult, but now it is done. So this whole chapter has been about worship. It's been about praise. It's been about rebuilding the ministry, exalting the Lord, ministering to one another. And in these final verses in chapter 12, the worship takes the form of tithes, takes the form of offering, takes the form of sharing their wealth. And so several weeks ago, I warned you that we would be talking about tithing and money and so forth. And I know that you can barely stay seated with this interesting topic. And uh, you're very anxious to hear what the Lord has to say about giving. And actually, we should be always anxious to hear God's teaching on any topic. It is ironic that um, we talk about money and giving that we literally live in the most materialistic culture that the world has ever known. We, we treasure our earthly treasures probably more than, uh, collectively more than any other culture that came before us. Uh, we, we love our things. I admit it. It's the culture I've been raised in. It's, it's hard to fight it. We love our things. We, we love, you know, a great conversation is to talk about the money you saved on something. I mean, it's just a big deal in our culture to save money. On anything, it's a big deal to get a great deal on something. Uh, we like to talk about new purchases and who has this and the latest thing. It's just a part of uh, the world that we live in. And unfortunately, because material things can become so important to us, then we talk about money and tithing. It's often hard to part with these things that we love so much. The scripture is going to speak to our hearts this morning about. Wealth and possessions and what place they have in our lives under the word of God. Uh, Jesus talks about money quite often, surprisingly often in the Gospels. About 25% of his content has something to do with money, wealth and possessions and the way we view it, the way we handle it. He talks about money in the Gospels a whole lot more than we talk about money and giving and tithing in this church, actually. And many of the main things are, or the main crux of what Jesus has to say about money and wealth and possessions is that he realizes that it's our temptation to turn to it to fill an emptiness in us, to turn to it for security and Many of the reasons that he gives the teachings he does about it is because he knows that's wrong. He knows that's a dead end. And he knows that really our love and security for possessions doesn't give us the happiness 
but can really lead us into a, a variety of forms of bondage. And, of course, Jesus came to set us free from these things of the world that have a tendency to grip us and confine us. He wants us to live in freedom. So he constantly talks about the place of possessions in our lives. And I hope that after this morning we'll have a better understanding of uh, money. And that's not just about uh, improving our standard of living but really, it's about improving our standard of ministry because that's one of the reasons that we have money to begin with. It's not just to provide for ourselves, but it's to provide and be used by God to uh, expand his kingdom and to display his greatness. Today, we're going to look at worship in the context of giving or uh, I think a good biblical word is stewardship, stewardship. How do we use our wealth or possessions? What are God's expectations? What place do they have in our lives? So we're going to read our text in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, According to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron, which, of course, were fellow priests with different responsibilities. <clears throat> now, before breaking this text down, I think it's good just to lay a foundation. And I said, Jesus talks a lot about money. It's good to lay a, a foundation by actually using Jesus's words. He brings giving up many, many times. Matter of fact, about 80 times. I said 25% of his teaching, but 80 times in the gospel. For example, Matthew 6, 21, he says, these are all familiar verses that uh, your money follows your heart. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about how practical that is. Isn't that just a profound statement? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus had a tendency to just go right for the heart, didn't he? He just knew, he knows how to go right for our hearts because we, we have a tendency to... to cloud things up and they're just they're, they're exceptions and circumstances and things require a tremendous amount of discernment and he has a way of just getting in there and laying out uh, rather than getting tied up with all these little issues just let's talk about the big thing and that is your heart the things that we hold in positions of prominence and glory we're going to want to invest in because we hold them so dear we want to keep them afloat in that position of glory. So we're going to use our time. We're going to use our resources. We're going, going to use our wealth to keep that thing of importance in that area of 
prominence. And so Jesus is saying kind of this bottom line thing. If you really want to know what's important to a person, watch how they spend their money. That's kind of ouchy, isn't it? Watch how they spend it. Where are they putting their, their time and their resources, the things that they've been entrusted with? What are they investing in in this life? That's how you can find out what people treasure. Okay, so you come to my house and you go into my shop. And what you're going to see is a lot of tools. I love tools. I mean, I really love tools. Maybe I love tools too much. I don't know. Uh, I used to make a living off of tools. And I can't buy them as much as I used to because they don't pay for themselves anymore. I wish I had more tools in my shop, I have a nice shop, and it's nice because it has to protect my tools in my shop. So I love tools. Um, I don't mind spending money on tools. I would much rather spend money on tools than other things. <clears throat> That's why one of the greatest gifts ever given to a pastor was a chainsaw for Pastor's Appreciation Day. I mean, I'm telling you, <clears throat> I love that chainsaw. It's a tool. It's power. It's machinery. Uh, if you make your way into my house, into my bedroom slash office, the first thing you're going to notice about my bedroom slash office is all the books. I love books. Maybe I love them too much. I, I don't know. I spent a lot of money on tools. I spent a lot of money on, on books. Uh, 98% of those books are about God. They're about how to love God, how to know God, how to live for God. And I love to read about God. I want to know all I can about it. And it's because of these books that I've been able to know what marriage is about and what fatherhood is about and what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a Christian. So I love these, these things and invest greatly in these things. So tools and, and books. And I took those tools that I love and I took the books and the knowledge that I had about what it means to be a family. And I built a house and put my family in it to try to love them and care for them and to raise them in the ways of the Lord. And we purposely built our house about three miles from this church because we love this church. And this is this is a place where we come and worship God and love God. This is the place where we invest our time and our resources to the Lord. One of the reasons that this ministry is what it is, is because this is where the Montanas tithe. This is where you tithe. This is where you bring your offerings and your sacrificial giving. And because you do that and invest, we have the ministry that we have today. It's the Lord's work. Uh, and the giving in the ministry isn't just what happens here. This church has the great privilege and the heart and the generosity to give to lots of other ministries and to support other things through the years. And if my recollection is correct, we have, we have given, um, uh, supported the kingdom of God in five of the seven continents. Uh, maybe I could stand to be corrected, but um, we have Africa, which we have contributed to ministry-wise. Uh, hold on, don't tell me. We have Africa, we have uh, Antarctica, I don't know if we've ever done that one. Um, we have... Uh, Asia, we have contributed to Australia. That's another one. I'm not sure about Australia. Does anybody know if we've contributed to any work of the Lord, Antarctica or Australia? But you have Asia and then the North and, and Europe and North and South America. Um, and so I'm not sure about Asia. I mean, Antarctica and Australia, maybe we need to work on that. And then we, we will have this little body will have contributed to the work of the kingdom in all seven continents.
continents of the world. But it's tremendous, the ministry that takes place here. And I'm very, very grateful for it. Jesus says, your treasure is where your heart is. He also goes on to say a few verses later in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Again, look look how he he just puts things so clearly. And I, I mean, I can see myself thinking and wanting to argue with him about the way he puts things so simplistically sometimes. But he says you can't serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So if we, if we worship money, what happens is God gets in the way. He gets in the way of our idol because his teachings say, don't love that so much. Don't give yourself to, to that so much. And so God gets in the way of that master. And we'll, we'll find ourselves wanting money so badly that uh, we, won't, we won't want to go to church on Sundays or go to meetings at night because... Hey, I could be sitting at home making money right now or I could be out on the job making money on Sundays and it's more money in the bank. It gives me that good feeling and that security. So, you know, the master of money, one of them's got to go. When you're really devoted to something, this isn't. And of course, Christianity isn't a sidebar. It's the main meal of life. And so it's either a master or it's not is what Jesus is saying. What is our master? And it shouldn't be. Money. And when we have the wrong kinds of idols and they become so important to us, we begin to compromise. And and we want it so badly that we justify compromising and maybe a, a little lie here to get money, maybe a little lie to save money, not telling the truth in a sale so I can get more money for this item. And they don't know it's broken or it's going to break down little fibs and, and lies and compromises. And and then we become willing to break the law. I mean, uh, idols are dangerous things. Uh, and the love of money is a dangerous thing that the Lord always um, warns us about. Don't let it become too important. First Timothy six ten, it's the love of money that leads to all kinds of evils. It's not money. Money's not bad. Wealth isn't bad. Gold and diamonds and precious metals, they're not bad. The problem is not that it's this. It's the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. There's nothing wrong with wealth. We look at the Old Testament and, uh, you know, sometimes Christians can take things too far and say, well, we need to live in absolute poverty. Well, if you if you willingly decide that for yourself, that's fine. But that's not the teaching for the Christian community. Uh, there are times where God has so blessed his people and it's and, and having a lot of food on the table is is a literal sign of the blessing of God. But we can also live with very little as well. Jesus that was his choice when he came in this life. Didn't even have a place to lay his head. That was the life he chose. He, he was born into that, but that was the life that he chose. It was just a humble life. I don't need these other things. And it was a lot of sacrifice involved there. But he willingly did it. <clears throat> the problem's not the wealth and the abundance. The problem is our hearts. We have this proclivity. Jesus is warning us. You're going to have a proclivity to, to glorify it. And to keep it in this place of power and, and promise and to worship it. When we read the Bible, we find this word uh, stewardship and stewards 
Stewards don't see themselves as the ultimate or final owner of their possessions. They see themselves as more of a conduit to what God has blessed them with, the treasures and the wealth and the riches. They, they want to use it as a conduit to bless the Lord. So it's not like, okay, God has given me this and now it's mine and nobody else can have it. It's God has given me this for a reason to give to others, to provide for myself and to give to others. So it's more of a conduit. It's more of a stewardship mentality. And scripture really even insinuates that God wealth is is crucial to the way God works in his economy and ministry. We know that we have bills to pay, practically speaking. Um, we minister by faith, but we also pay the light bill and so forth in a practical sense. Scripture insinuates that God looks for people, desires to employ people, if you will, that can be trusted with wealth, that can be trusted to, to distribute it where he desires. So in Luke 16, 10 through 12, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So this, this leaves the door open for this possibility that um, God is looking for people to distribute and minister his, his wealth and riches. That can be trusted. So I read that and I, and I ask myself, can I be trusted if God... Bless me with, with this or this amount of abundance. What would I do with it? Would I, would I have loose hands? Would I not grab it but just let it filter through? Can I be trusted with what God entrusts me? Of course, this is not to be confused with the prosperity gospel of, you know, the seed money and 10% turns into a, a hundred and so forth and all the schemes. If you send this in, God will bless you with that. Prosperity gospel quite frankly, is false teaching. Uh, how God wants us to be live like kings and be rich. If you just read the Gospels, and we're getting a little bit of it, just a touch of it this morning, what does Jesus have to say about money? You'll never come to that conclusion. It's just false teaching. You know, there are a lot of people that love the Lord and are, are very mature and have tremendous faith, and they live on next to nothing. And they're very fine with that. They're great with that. They don't want any more. It's by their own choice or it's just the, uh, the lot that the Lord has given them. And they're fine with that. And that's a perfectly okay thing to do. It's not a sign of a lack of faith uh, to live minimally. But eventually it all comes down to the heart. Do you love the money more than the Lord? Or do you love the Lord? Are you going to use people to get more money? Or, or are you going to use the money you have to love more people? So this is kind of just a, a background um, smorgasbord, if you will, of information, of teaching, so that we can better appreciate what's really happening here in Nehemiah chapter 12. Because it's a great big worship service. Great things are happening. The people are turning their hearts back to the Lord. God's word is being read. People are listening to it. They're seeing my life. I'm not in obedience to that. I need to be in obedience to that. And they're changing. And they're offering sacrifices. Um, 
they, they are they're singing at the top of their lungs. They're filled with joy. Wonderful things are happening. Leaders are being appointed, put in important positions, and they're bringing their wealth. They're bringing their treasures because they want the temple to just continue to thrive. They want their praise to get louder and better. They want the sacrifices uh, to be bigger and better. In other words, for ministry to thrive there. And they're willingly giving their tithes and their offerings. They want to do this because of the wonderful things that are happening in their presence. That's the context of this. <clears throat> so we're going to look at this text now and I want to make a few observations. First thing I want to do is rather than talking about us giving is I want to make a few observations on the receiving side of ministry, the receiving side of offerings and tithes. Look at verse 44. Does the ministry have proper financial management? On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes. So what's happening is these people want to promote the kingdom of God. They're bringing their their wealth and their offerings and there are people that have been assigned. There are people who are in place to make sure that the tithes are handled properly. They're counted properly and they are used for their proper use. So they had a very good system of management there. They even hired people or appointed people so that the people could that were giving, they could feel good about where their money was going. They, they knew where it was going there was a trustworthy system of management there. They didn't have to wonder, hey, once I, this money leaves my hand, what's going to happen to it? And there were men required to oversee it so that it could be a trustworthy system. So things weren't lost. Hey, what happened to that thing I gave? Ah, we don't know what happened to it. Or people weren't skimming off the top. They were assured of their gifts and wrong bills weren't being paid and things being neglected. Why don't we have lights on here at church on Sunday morning? Well, we don't know what happened to that money to we were going to use to pay the bill. So it was it was a wise investment. It was a good investment and they were very happy to give to that kind of trustworthy organization. And some people, you know, they worked full time, they worked part time, but paid positions were put into place if you look at Verse 47, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites and for the sons of Aaron. So most of these people, although they had other jobs, part time, full time, whatever, they were um, they were compensated for their service, for doing a, a good job. For seeing that the proper ministry is taking place in the proper way. Now, it's interesting that <clears throat> I think it's probably been about 20-ish years ago when, when things started coming to light. But, you know, America's big on charity, biggest givers, um, really, I think, internationally. And uh, we have some great charitable organizations and, of course, get a tax break for that. Christian or non-Christian, but began to come to late light that some of the, the most prominent charitable organizations that the majority of the money that was given was used to fund that organization. 
was used to fund the management of it. And actually, in some cases, only 10, 20 percent of all the money that they were receiving were actually going to the people that they were supposed to be offering aid to and ministering. And so people started learning about this and it would it would get people upset and giving started to go down because there wasn't this trust anymore. When you break down the trust, a lot of times the giving decreases as well. So having a, a trustworthy uh, system in place is very, very important. And this still happens in our day and age. Uh, things get out of balance. Uh, recently, I read about a huge ministry. I've never been a part of it, but I've heard of it before. Teen mania. Maybe some of you have been a part of that. Uh, big trouble because of uh, misproper, just, just bad leadership and um, misproper management of the funds. You know, when it, when it comes to ministry, there's a sense in which you have to be worth giving to. It need to be a wise investment. And so many people, uh, Christians just give according to emotion or feeling, having no idea many times what they're actually giving to. So it's important for to know what the organization is all about. And make sure it's trustworthy and that it's going to uh, the proper place under proper management. The second thing here is, does the ministry have proper doctrine? So, in other words, are the people that are handling the money uh, putting it towards causes that are truly biblical? Now, it wasn't so difficult in that day if, unless there were false gods in, in the temple. But uh, in our day and age, there just are a lot of different ministries out there. And it's our responsibility before we start dishing out money to make sure that the ministry we are investing in is actually propagating sound doctrine. Because if you do a little research, you will find that that's not always the case. And a lot of Christians just generously give money to things that are and teachings that actually contradict holy scripture. Not to pick on the prosperity gospel, but pretty notorious for that. All the money, all the giving that goes into that. Um, with the hopes and the promise of God's going to make you rich too, like playing the lottery. That's not, that's false teaching and it's being sent over the airwaves and propagated. It's not sound doctrine. So we want to make sure that the things that we give towards are properly managed, but also that they're biblical, that they really are God-centered, that they're really gospel-centered. And that people, that we're not the part of the cause of sending false teaching. Um, over the airways. A good way to find this out is in this day and age, and we have the, the Internet. And you can, most of the time, you can go on websites or get pamphlets or something and look at what the ministry is about. What does it really stand for? And what is their doctrinal statement? And there's been times where I have been very interested in ministries. And I thought, man, that's really, that really is a needed thing. And I'd go on and look, do some research, and I'd find... Um, not as good as I thought. The management's not there or their beliefs are off when it comes to Scripture. And then I, I don't support that ministry. And it's our responsibility um, to, to do that. Uh, also, ministries that we may have committed to support uh, yearly, we want to keep an eye on those ministries. And don't just assume... That, well, I made a pledge. It was good. I looked into it back here. And 20 years later, ministries change. 
And so it's our responsibility to continue to look into them. What's really happening? Is the gospel going forth? What are they doing with the funds and so forth? We want to to be wise investors for the kingdom of God. Look at doctrinal statements. Verse 45. It says, They perform the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. What, what they're saying is they're going by the book. They're going by God's word. They're, they're ministering and handling these things just as God has said. It's, it's a biblical practice. Uh, they have competent leaders in place. So it's not just the giving that's important. A lot of times you hear about the giving, but not the receiving end. The receiving end is important as well. Now, as for the giving end, here are some observations that we can make based on this passage. First, do you appreciate competent leaders and ministries? Look, look at their response in verse 44. Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They had good People in position to do the job well. And the people were, they realized how blessed they were to be under that kind of leadership. People that took their job seriously, that had a heart for God. And they, they were thanking God for their leaders and for being served so well. That God had raised them up for that very purpose. To serve them in that area. You know, I think a strong point about this church is often you hear the leadership complimented and prayed for. Uh, we are lifted up and it's it's just an, it's a incredible, refreshing thing to hear when in a lot of churches there's always this dissension and dichotomy between the leaders and the people, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's hard to get things done. But I appreciate the attitude and the gratitude that is publicly proclaimed um, in this church, and we all want to be encouraged in the jobs that we do. Second, do you see your responsibility in supporting the ministries from which you benefit? Now, in that day and age, it was real easy because basically there was one place. The ultimate place to worship God was the city of God, Jerusalem. He made it very clear. This is my city. This is where my presence is going to dwell. Here's where you bring your offerings and your sacrifices. Not anywhere you want. You bring them to the temple. And so that was literally the epicenter of worshiping God and what it meant to worship God. That's where you went to get feed, to, to fed, ministered to, and also to minister. And in our day and age, where is our epi- epicenter? Where is the place that we are getting fed and where is the place that we are ministering where we're plugged in? That's the place that should receive the, the bulk of our tithes and offerings. That's the place that God has planted us to grow. And they gave their tithes. They gave their, their first fruits. And what does it mean for your first fruit? Well, basically, uh, when you get the big paycheck in that day or the harvest comes in, it means what they did is, Okay, here's how much I made. I'm taking this percent. I'm putting it over here, and this is God's. No questions asked. I'm going to give this to the Lord because the Lord's given me all this. And that day and age, it was 10%. Uh, Who gets the first fruits of our paycheck? Uncle Sam. You get your paycheck. 
you, you go to your first um, week of work. If you've never been an employee before, it's always just been mom and dad, and they give you nickels and dimes and dollars. But you get your big paycheck, and you do the math. I'm getting $8 an hour. You know, I work 40 hours a week, and you get your paycheck. Uh, this isn't what I calculated in my mind. What has happened to my paycheck? Well, the first fruit of your paycheck went to somebody else before you ever got it. First fruits. Um, don't mean to be negative on that, but... We do have taxes. But the, the point is this. Uh, when we get our paycheck, where are the priorities? You know, God's provision to us, where are our, provide, our priorities and how we're going to spend it? There's, there's an expectation. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but there's an expectation that the Lord has blessed us with this and we are to turn around and bless him with a portion of what he has blessed us us with these people gave that percentage it was simple they were glad to give it um, right off the top and you know to my knowledge there weren't any big it wasn't a big to do you just did it they didn't flash the blue lights the red lights when oh we got a big giver over here or if you give this much you get to have your picture taken with Ezra and Nehemiah you know if you if you can get that all this kind of stuff they just humbly gave because it was their great pleasure to do so to the Lord. And they gave uh, to promote God and not themselves. Another thing I love about this church is you guys are so humble when it comes to giving. I mean, when have you ever heard any big deal made in this church about a big gift that's been given? I'm not aware. And I've been here just about since the beginning. I'm not aware of any. Because... Uh, the Lord has given a spirit of humility in this place. The people in this church, and you don't even know it because they want to be so anonymous when they give a gift. They don't want to be promoted at all. They want God to be promoted. They want God to be blessed. And so there are gifts that given are, are given um, impressive gifts, and you don't even know about it. Most of us don't even know about it because God is promoted. That's the point. Not not people. Not the giver. It's a beautiful, beautiful, refreshing thing. But when talking about tithing, <clears throat> a lot of people today, you know, as New Testament Christians, we want to know, okay, how much do I have to give? What do I really, what is God telling me? Is it 10%? And then is it, is it the gross or is it the net? Is it after Uncle Sam, before Uncle Sam? What do I do here? Uh, a lot of people like to stick with the 10% rule of the Old Testament law and say, I'm going to, just to be safe, I'm going to give that. Or I think literally God requires me to give the 10%. Some people get very legalistic about, I'm giving 10%, not a penny more, not a penny less, because that's what God requires of me. Um, if you want to get legalistic about it, that's fine. But I would encourage you to actually go back and read all of the giving laws in the Old Testament and what you will find is that it really adds up to more than 10% because they had extra feasts, extra religious festivals. And you're looking at about 20 to 25% if everybody faithfully gave according to that law on that day. You're looking at about 20 to 25% of your income. Um, <clears throat> my, my personal teaching on this is that Christ came and fulfilled the law. We're not, we're not bound by it. He freed us up. To give and to give generously, there's still an expectation there, but it's not it's not a legalistic thing. It's a it's a freedom. 
to give now. I think 10% is a good practical place to start. I think it's a great place to start. I have no problem with using that figure as far as how to get plugged into giving. But when you think about the New Testament teachings and you think of and you begin to learn all that the Lord has blessed us with, uh, you quickly start wondering, is 10 percent enough? I mean, when you read the scriptures and you realize how rich we are in Christ, we start wondering, is 10 percent enough? And for many cases, it may not be enough for us. We may have a heart to give more. As I said a few sermons ago, I think when we say, how much do I have to give? Really, that's not the right way to pose that question. If we're asking how much, okay, God, how much do I have to give you? We're asking the wrong question. I think it should be, how much do I need to keep? How much do I need to live on? And God wants to provide for us. He does provide for us. He makes that very clearly. But when I get that in, what do I need? And then what, how much is left? How much is freed up for the purposes of the kingdom? We, we live here. We have this opportunity only, our lifetime. Our paychecks are limited. Our income is limited. This is the opportunity we have to generously give towards the, work, the Lord's work. And in God's economy, he really uses pennies and nickels and dimes and dollars. He really uses it. Uh, in the economy of his ministry, that's how people hear about the gospel. That's how people grow in Christ. Literally, it's by his choice. So it's very, very important. The question should be, how much do I really need to live in light of the spiritual needs that are out there? Now, let me just close with a few um, things that the New Testament says about giving. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Apostle Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say each one must give his 10% as the Lord has commanded. It becomes an issue of the heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, but reluctantly, uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I had I had it highlighted so well that I uh, I I blotted out that letter there. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The first observation: giving is assumed. I mean, uh, it's unthinkable. It really is one of those things that's unthinkable uh, that we would not want to give to the Lord's work if we just stop for a second and think of how generous he has been to us. So it's, it's understood. It's, it's assumed we are absolutely missing out on crucial opportunities if we have not experienced the blessing of giving because God uses that to grow his people and to proclaim his word. Second, uh, it should be sacrificial at times. Second Corinthians eight, three through four, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, he says, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then 
uh, Jesus' example in Luke 21, 4. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on, the widow's might. That's where you, the, the percentage thing. If what Jesus is saying is if you're really, really loaded, you got more money than you know what to do with, and you put 10% in the offering plate, what is that to you? There's just so much more. There's not even, there's not a sacrificial element in it at all. And giving, at times, we need to be stretched and we need to be sacrificial. Why? Well, because the giving of God was a sacrifice. He gives generously at his own cost, at his own personal sacrifice. And then lastly, it should be cheerful. Um, Shouldn't be, don't you love those words? It shouldn't be out of guilt. Specifically says it shouldn't be out of guilt. How many times do you hear pleas for money that are playing on our guilt? It shouldn't be out of reluctance. We should know enough about God and enough about his teachings and what he's done in our lives and what he's doing in our lives that we should willingly and cheerfully want to give. I mean, you get the impression from the Apostle Paul, God loves a cheerful giver. So during our times of offering, when these guys turn around and pass out the plates, we should be cracking up. We should be rolling around in joy and laughter that we get to give to the Lord. should be one of the most cheerful parts of our worship service. I don't know. Cheerful. How cheerful is it? I know we have to be quiet and respectful because we have offering music. So we can't get all rowdy and ecstatic. But that's the idea that we're, we're literally making an impact. We get this great privilege to give something back to God because he's done so much for us. And it's so little, but it, he, he says, yeah, it's little, but it really counts. Little really counts. So we'd be saying, praise the Lord. There goes my money. Hallelujah. It's making its way into the back and it's going to go into the bank account. This is awesome. I'm so happy about this. Well, in conclusion, how do we stay cheerful? How is that even possible? I really like what Mark Driscoll has to say about this. The only way you can be a cheerful giver is this, to see Jesus in this way. Our God is Jesus. Jesus is a giver. In every other religion, their God's a taker. Their God says, you've sinned against me. You own me. You've got to suffer. You've got to reincarnate yourself. You've got to suffer through purgatory. You've got to pay me back. You've got to do good works. You need to try really hard because you owe me every other religion. The God of that religion is a taker. And Jesus is a giver. And what is Jesus doing right now? He's giving. He's giving salvation. He's, he's giving people new lives. He's giving people new hearts. He's giving forgiveness. He's giving love. He's giving mercy. He's giving grace. He's giving joy. He's giving compassion, restoration, healing, fruitfulness. He's giving us the resources that we need to do the Christian life in the way that he desires that we do it. See, we give cheerfully because we are cheerful recipients. Of a giving God. What do you do if you're here and you're not a Christian? You think, well, what do I do if I don't even believe in Christ? Do I give? I'd say no. If, you don't, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Christ, 
You don't give, receive. Receive Christ first. Because when you receive Christ and you, and you immerse yourself in his teaching and you feel his love and experience his love, then you'll want to give. You'll be on board with what God is doing gloriously in this world. You'll be cheerful. You'll want to sing. You'll want to laugh when your money's going down in the offering plate. And you'll want to live for the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. May God bless the preaching of His Word.